0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Ask a Leader. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, for the March 4, 2014 edition. Today, we'll hear briefly from Christopher Smith, co-director of the documentary Tiny, A Story About Living Small, presented at the Cinema Orange Film Series this week, then- From uh, returning to Ask a Leader is local activist and recently appointed Irvine Planning Commissioner Harvey Liss. Then wrapping up is Phyllis Gilmore, reflecting upon the contributions of her husband, the late Bernard Gilmore, faculty member of the School of the Arts Music Department, in advance of a performance appreciating him. Don't go away. We'll be right back after a short break. Thanks, everybody, for staying with us here on Ask a Leader. As part of the Cinema Orange film series, March 6th, that's this Thursday at 8 p.m., co director, uh, the two directors, Merritt Mueller and Christopher Smith, of the production Tiny, a Story About Small Living at the Orange County Art Museum at 850 San Clemente Drive, Newport Beach. Tiny is a documentary about home and how we find it. This is Christopher's first film, premiered at the South by Southwest in 2013, and is screened um, has screened over 40 film festivals worldwide. It will be released by First Run Features in the spring of this very year. His work has been featured on CNN, ABC, Al Jazeera America, Upworthy, Huffington Post, Canada AM, Buzzworthy, and the UK Daily Mail. He is uh, he studied at the. Uh, At Boulder University and the University of Colorado Denver Graduate School. He comes to us today from Boulder. Welcome to the show, Christopher.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: I'm glad you're here. Well, let's talk. The film follows one couple's attempt to build a tiny house from scratch and profiles other families who have downsized their lives into houses smaller than the average parking space. And uh, through, the, uh, through homes that are stripped down to their essentials, the film, you raise questions about sustainability, good design, and changing the American dream. How tiny are we talking, Christopher?
1: Uh, well, most tiny houses are probably around 124 square feet, uh, but they can vary in size anywhere from, you know, I think the smallest I'm aware of is about 80 and they can go all the way up to, you know, 200. And really it sort of depends on your definition of what tiny is.
0: Okay. So um, that's the 80. I think I've spoken with uh, some uh, about a couple of years ago with a couple in northern California that did about the 80 square feet. And uh, they, they they had to keep paring down. It took many iterations of the paring down to get to that. So uh, mm-hmm. we we're, yeah,
1: they're. They're actually uh, featured in our film. I think that's Tammy and Logan.
0: Oh, okay. I, well, there we go. We're all we're all on the <laughs> same oh, we're all on the same deck. Well, I noticed with one of the um, documentaries about tiny living that uh, there's always that deck outside. To expand the square footage too. So that's
1: right. Yeah. yeah, when you live in a tiny house, the really what you're doing is is you're just sort of externalizing some of what you would normally have done in your house. So you tend to live outside a lot more or amongst your community.
2: Okay,
0: well, um, when the the tiny home paradox, I think among many things that you mentioned, it opens you up to the world. It's freeing you from that maintenance and the the expense of a larger home. Tell us a little bit about more about the paradox.
1: Um, Sure. Well, it's it's interesting that you know people. You might assume that when you sort of cram yourself into a really tiny space, that it actually feels more confining. But we noticed that a lot of people who we spoke to, found that it actually enhanced the quality of their life even more than living in their previous much larger house because they were able to, instead of working all the time and putting that money into their house, they were able to spend more of their money on experiences, uh, spend more time with family and friends, and really creating the quality of life that they wanted that they didn't really get by living in their larger house.
0: Well, it it makes perfect sense. I guess it's just a leap for people to think about, well, you don't need that extra... uh, that extra square footage for uh, I don't know this for we can name whatever uses that I think there's a there's uh, you found that there's some barriers here that um, I'll just open with one barrier that you address in your living is that there's status with every additional square footage.
1: Um, yes, status um, like as as, in, as in, among your peers. What
0: you mean? Um, peers presenting a big home, saying you know, yeah, showing off yeah. your neighbors to your peers, the, the status of and the perception that a tiny home might bring property values down around your neighbors.
1: Exactly. Yeah, those are all um, things that you know we've sort of been told, and, and you know, I think there's something about the American dream that kind of built in that is that it's implied that in order to sort of show how you're like. You know, making your way with that American dream is, you know, it's like these material things that really kind of demonstrate your success. And, um, and, you know, I think our generation, um, like the younger generation that's kind of coming up now is uh, starting to rethink that a bit and they're reevaluating what it means to be successful.
0: Well, maybe the the, uh, young generation, too, is working with just smaller gadgets about make your house smaller, like your pared down uh, electronics and all that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely something to it, too. Um, you know, and, and also it just helps ideas like this catch on, just, you know, seeing them a lot more. And, uh, you know, the Internet has been a huge factor in the tiny house movement and sort of popularizing it a lot quicker than you might have expected 20 years ago.
0: And then and some other barriers you talk about are those uh, civil and financial, that the building permits sort of lock people into certain size Mortgage institutions want to see a certain size, escrow, uh, construction firms. talked a little bit about that kind of uh, force to be contended with.
1: Sure. Well, when I was um, you know, setting up to build my tiny house, I called the building uh, department and, and tried to do it sort of the, through the normal legal cha- channels of building structure. And I found out that, you know, in most counties, and particularly in mine, you had to build at least 600 square feet in order um, to be properly following the building codes. Um, But then, you know, when I went back to tiny houses, I realized that most tiny houses are actually built on trailers. And what this does is, um, you know, it basically is a gray area where you're following the rules of the highway um, in terms of, like, the size and also, you know, temporary structures, basically. So they don't really count as a real structure, you know, which is... You know it's an interesting way kind of around the lot, but it's it's still you know quasi legal but I think that most tiny house people would probably uh, be okay with you know building within uh, the building codes if they were updated to include this new uh, the way that people want to live these days you know
0: right right well i I think it's interesting we were in the Irvine area treated uh last fall to the Solar Decathlon, first time ever it was presented outside of um, Washington, D.C., and we saw some terrific and leading-edge inventive examples of pared-down living, and I think it's kind of ironic, and boy, I hope you're listening, Five Point Communities, it's kind of ironic that the developer of the property abutting that site is turning out some designs that are rather antithetical to what was exciting everybody.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting how you see that. There's still a lot of pushback. You know, in the marketplace, or, or really the people who drive the marketplace, tend to be these large developers, and you know they don't particularly care about what's good um, for the planet all the time. Sometimes they're really just looking to, you know, get the the most return on their investment, and the best way to do that is actually with houses that have a lot of square footage, because when you you know one way of evaluating sort of a house design is to talk about you know cost per square footage. And if you look at tiny houses, the cost per square footage is actually really higher. significantly higher than right. the cost per square footage of building a 4,000-square-foot house. But they're significantly cheaper overall. Well, um, and,
0: and we know that the market for these new houses, it's an international market, so I guess we, we've got to get that prospective customer drooling, and it's maybe the drool factor isn't the same with the tiny house. So that's what, those are sort of the uphill factors we're talking about.
1: Well, yeah, but, you know, what's interesting is the tiny house movement partially developed because you know, when Jay first kind of set out to, to really, you know, get it going, it was the, the draw of the tiny house is that it looks like a house, that it is actually, you know, people are like, well, why, why is it different than a trailer home? And the difference is that design, you know, you bring, you can, these days, so many tiny house people are building these really innovative designs and, you know, they, they are like are modern, they're hip, they're cool, they just happen to be a little bit smaller. And, uh, you know, I think that's what's really kind of tipping the scales to, to have people reevaluate their own situation and say, oh, yeah, I could totally live in that, you know, because it doesn't look like a trailer.
0: Right, right. Well, we need to wrap it up because I know you're on your way and we've got a couple other guests here queuing up here. Uh, Everyone, we've just had a chance to talk with Christopher Smith, co-director of Tiny, a story about living small, presented at the Orange County Museum of Art at, as I was mentioning earlier, 850 San Clemente Drive in Newport Beach. It's Thursday night at 8 o'clock. More information is available by calling 949-759-1122, or there's always the website for the museum, www.ocma.net. Or, can't they, Christopher, they can call uh, check in with your website, www.tiny-themovie.com. Christopher, Christopher Smith, thanks for being on the show today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Claudia.
0: Okay, thanks a lot for joining us. We'll be right back. Stay with us.
1: Feels like home
0: Thank you, everybody, for staying with us today. My next guest on the show is Harvey Liss, who returns to ask a leader, literally, to dig up the dirt. Harvey Kahn, with civil engineering credentials from the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art in New York City, and a Ph.D. in Applied Mechanics at what is now the Polytechnic Institute of New York University. Once a professor at Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, Harvey became a project engineer for the village of Woodridge right here in Irvine. Harvey, who's lived in Woodridge in 1976, was involved in the effort to convert the El Toro Marine Corps Air Station into the Orange County Grade Park. Last month, City Council Member Larry Agron appointed Harvey to represent him on the Irvine Planning Commission. He joins me again here in studio. A. Welcome back to the show, Harvey. Oh, there we go. thank
2: you very much for inviting me, Claudia. I'm it's glad you, to be
0: here. It's good to have you here. So today we're um, going to take up this tug of war going on in Irvine. I'm not sure it's palpable to all, but it is happening, folks. The tug of war between the city council and the school board district concerning the siding of Irvine's fifth high school to be built uh, adjacent to the Great Park. So why don't you fill us in on... Where do the paths of these two two jurisdictions diverge towards securing a site for the high school? How did that happen?
2: There's obviously a long history in this, so I'm not going to go through the the whole history. And when you say there's a tug-of-war between the city council and the school board, the tug-of-war probably is between two members of the city council. That is uh, council members uh, Agron and Crom who really have been, uh, as you say, uh, digging up the, the, the dirt to really find out the truth behind the, the issue. Now, what the issue is, is that for a few years, Five Point Communities designated Site A, which is in the northeastern part of the Great Park, for the next school. And it was really intended to be a, a placeholder. They needed to contribute approximately 40 acres for a new high school and that spot was laid out some time ago before there was really any any great uh, planning uh, done. And for some reason or other, that spot remained. That spot happened to be right next to uh, what's called IRP Site 3, which is on the Federal Superfund cleanup list. It was a landfill in which lots of toxic waste were dumped. And whether or not there has been toxic waste d- dumped in it, even though there are thousands of pages of Navy documents, has itself been an issue. So every item of this discussion has been seemingly an unresolved issue.
0: Seemingly, and, and we're watching it. It, it, does, it does feel a bit like a divorce here between those two entities, and I'm, I am not relishing how this is happening. It's squandering so much public policy opportunity and that. So we're going to address what's lost along the way besides literacy with the uh, – oh, you have something to say right now. Well, uh, yes, yeah,
2: well, I, I I do what certainly I, I everyone would hope for, for would be complete transparency, which means exposure of of the truth and the facts. Yet it seems that at every turn, IOSD has been very, uh, I suppose, uh, secretive. The release of information has been uh, mostly whitewashed and there's been an attempt to really suppress just investigating the facts their uh, presumptive need to open the school in the new high school in 2016 has seemed to override and overrule every other consideration, which doesn't seem to be appropriate if we're going to protect the students that are going to be there for the next who knows 50 hundred years, perhaps. High schools last a very long time. In fact, what what I'd like to do is yes. uh, well, you've put
0: together uh, an amazing report.
2: Thanks. Well, what and, I can do is
0: uh, and it's not seen the light of day necessarily. So, this is like one area. This community radio station can be a way of disseminating a little bit of information. We'll, we'll do what we can today. Harvey doesn't have all morning, so we're going to give him the sh- a best shot here this morning now. Well, I can I time. can
2: start with this uh uh email that came from uh, IUSD that uh thought he was nice enough to email to well, me. Well,
0: every parent in the school everybody with a child in the school district received this from the school board superintendent well, Terry since, Walker. Since
2: I don't have a child in the school, I did not receive this. But in any case, I read this and this really is a repetition of a lot of misinformation that has been spread around. So, I'll just pick out a couple of items on here and and kind of re- indicate my my view and and refute really what what it says here.
0: This is a January 17 letter. So I didn't set Harvey up for this. I just, I, he gave me some information. He was looking up, and I thought, well, here's, here's what people have been getting as parents. So it, we're, he's just using this at his own discretion.
2: Yes. Now, for example, it says here, naturally, and this, this is on the IUSD letter, naturally we will work closely with all required state agencies, including the Department of Toxic Substances Control, to ensure our schools meet or exceed the clear and rigorous guidelines established for school construction. Now, some of you may be uh, remembering of the Belmont High School, Belmont Learning Center scandal.
0: In L.A. Unified.
2: in, In L.A. Unified, in which the school was built. There was discovery gradually more and more of toxic waste on the site, and those reports were covered up to a greater and greater extent until finally the whole issue exploded. After $160 million was invested, parts had to be torn down. Right now, it was completely reconstructed, but uh, careers were, were ruined. It was just an enormous, I think someone called it a scandal of biblical uh, proportions, whatever that, that means. It was expensive. It was it was very expensive. And after that, uh, a small department in California was, I, I, I believe, it was then renamed to the Department of Toxic Substances Control to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Unfortunately, they have not been very proactive. And the state law was changed, that is the California Education Code code was amended, to say that a school built with state funds cannot be built on a toxic waste dump or a toxic waste landfill. However, it doesn't say that it cannot be built next to such a landfill with toxic waste in it, which really is the gotcha in all of this. What it does say is you have to hire a consultant that says it's okay. And anybody can find a consultant to say it's okay on every issue. Just look at all of these expert testimonies that happened to trials They that, that, that claim the most absurd things. In any case, this amendment was intended to just address this one issue and for some reason not the adjacent issue. Now, a lot of the school contamination cases that are coming up now have to do with contamination coming from off-site, across the street, right next door, oil field that's down the road a little bit. It requires some amount of uh, proactivity, some gumption, some judgment, some opinion, to say clearly this is not a good place to put a school, even though it's not specifically prohibited in the law, and that's the the, the difficulty. So to continue a little bit in this uh, in this the letter, letter from here
0: superintendent Terry Walker.
2: It says a capped landfill is located north of Site A, containing primarily construction debris and ash. Now that statement is. True, it does primarily contain that, but there's also an unknown amount of toxic substances, solvents, xylene, toluene, benzene. These were solvents that were used by the military to clean aircraft engines and parts and whatnot. And there has never been detailed testing of this site. There's a fair amount of speculation. There were interviews done of the personnel in the '90s, many of the people that worked there—of course, this was a long time ago, beginning in 1943—hard to reach these. Most of the people are are dead that worked there. So, but
0: we do have the Legacy Project, and some of those people might have some institutional uh, 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 memory.
2: Yes, there, were, there was obviously no official records of anybody dumping toxic substances. And uh, and if you interview the, uh, the the colonels, and I read one interview, he says, "Oh no, but we would never do any such thing." Well, that's obviously ridiculous because they had to do something with those solvents after they were 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 dirty after they were they were used. So uh, there was some testing that was done by this company, Shaw Environmental, that did this uh, retained by the district retained. Well, it was retained by the, uh, oh, the by the, the, Department navy, of the navy by the navy to do the. A re, uh, remediation of the site, and that's another word that's been widely misused. Remediation to the Navy means either removal of the toxic substance or just capping it and make sure, that, making sure the stuff, at least best as they can, does not escape. It does not necessarily mean cleaning up. However, that has been widely misinterpreted to mean cleaning up. And in fact, in a California EPA document, it does say that, in their lexicon, remediation means cleaning up. That's the first major piece of of, of uh, confusion in this. There are toxic substances, and it's well documented, and uh, they've been found leaching out, although at a small rate, in uh, wells that were dug surrounding this this landfill.
0: One thing, while you're looking at that, it so, it struck me as it was as the superintendent telling us something uh is it an intentional message or an unintentional one that he's uh, mentioning the the school district the um the school PTA recently completed a report endorsing Site A after, and, I'm, and this is in the letter verbatim, the PTA recently completed a report endorsing Site A after engaging its own thorough analysis, examining such factors as safety, train, traffic, and timing. I mean, that's all, it's not just the, the hazardous waste aspect, but the whole uh, systematic way this parcel would function in the school district. I I just don't, I don't know why the PTA would be mentioned because I, I know the PTA has its blind spots with various public policy considerations. And so I, how did that strike you when you got to that part?
2: I'd love to see the evidence that their study was based on. And it's too bad that they were dragged into this thing because it's not, it's not going to end. It's like a
0: lay public, it, though.
2: Well, yeah, it's not going to end in a good pl- place. That's guaranteed because the truth will out ultimately.
0: Well, as you were saying, for those of you who've just tuned in, we're talking with uh, Harvey List, local activist, now recently appointed planning commissioner for the city of Irvine. We're digging up the dirt, the sediments along the the sites around and in on the site A under consideration now uh, with a lot of momentum behind it by the Irvine Unified School Board uh, for the fifth high school to be built in Irvine Unified School District. Well, you, yes.
2: Harvey, I'd like to add that recently there has been new information confirming the toxic contamination that did migrate from this uh, landfill onto the Site A, the proposed high school site, and that is this report. It's called a preliminary environmental assessment report, which which was uh, put together by, at the time, the planning center. This is an environmental company hired by the school district, and this report is required to clear the proposed school site of at least make sure that it does not contain contaminants above a certain level this report just came out beginning of february last month l- last month i think february 2nd the 3rd is when it was when it was published and in it there is a lot of testing of site a and one of the wells that's really closest to this i'll call it this toxic landfill irp site 3 one of these wells did show several contaminants identical to those found leaching out of the toxic landfill, which is about 700 feet away. It was not found in any other well, so one might think, oh, if we found this one well with it, why not check around a little bit more and see where this is coming from, see, see if it's propagating, is it getting worse or less uh, uh, diminishing with time? There was no further testing yet done, uh, with it done at all. The conclusion of the report is that it's below the level considered safe. And I should say that for something like toluene, which is a neurotoxicant, there is no safe level. It affects brain development of young people. And uh, uh, there's been a lot of conflict between mandated safe le- so-called safe levels, which sometimes seem arbitrary, and uh, actual developmental problems that cause in people, these these toxins that, toxins that have no um, minimum safe dose. It's kind of like radioactivity. It just keeps accumulating over a lifetime. In any case, it did show, this report did show these toxins, and the conclusion of the report is the school is safe because it was below a, a level. Now, ironically, in the report itself, it says that before workers can be on the site, right. they need to dig... Another fifteen wells, and they have to have these hazardous uh, 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 protection equipment on on hand and gas masks and whatnot this is for the workmen but the work the the site has been according to them cleared for students and faculty so it's unsafe for the workmen to build a school but it's safe for the faculty that, and students that was, that was a concern that
0: was a concern and it's this isn't this isn't trumped up this is the actual requirement there for yes. uh, pursuing this project so uh, i I notice that I'm glad you brought that up and uh, there's also um, so because I know you have uh, just a little bit a bit more time uh, left here that not only do they need to protect themselves but you're so you're saying that they were this information available to the public we might have a little different idea about this momentum it's got the the school's got to be done. We don't, so we don't have any overcrowding in September of 2016. But I think, I mean, you're projecting that uh, once the um, these th- these contamination issues are all addressed, there might be some pushback where people may not they th- just choose not to go to that school.
2: I mean, what a projection! Yes, uh, ultimately, that's certainly my 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 fear. And why not let these folks know? Right right now at the beginning, rather than after the school is built and then try to find people that want to attend the school. See, like like an enormous risk to just plow ahead and just ignore all of these indicators that there is a indeed a problem that needs to be investigated a little bit more. You mentioned
0: in great detail the aspect of, of the hazard waste abutting and potentially on the site A. I think if you are concerned and discrediting a good deal of the science done in that aspect, it does create some concern for some of the other data collected for the element, the traffic element, and others if we should be uh, if that might in- invalidate some of the other work that's being done. we don't have time to unpackage all of that, but that it when one looks at the difference between site A and site B for how traffic is bottlenecked in either one of those places, there there's a lot of concerns about why uh, that site A is, is is still in the running. Yeah, so, I
2: need to correct something you just said. I'm okay. not questioning any of the scientific evidence. The scientific evidence is all uh, correct from what I can tell. I have no no problem at all with it's any just of the minimal. testing that was done. No, it's just the opinions based on the evidence that I disagree with and the judgments I disagree okay. with. I, thank you. I stand to be corrected on that. Now, you're talking about the traffic issue. I can make one, one comment about the traffic issue, and that is right now Irvine Boulevard has speed limit signs of 65 miles an hour. It looks kind of like a freeway and behaves like like a freeway. This proposed school site, Site A, is right adjacent to Irvine Boulevard. There's no intervening street. Yet, the traffic issue for that Site A is compared to other schools. Now, on Site B, Sand Canyon is one half a mile away from, from high school, so what's the point of comparing traffic volumes on Sand Canyon with Irvine Boulevard when the site B, the alternative site proposed by the Irvine City Council, is half mile away from that thoroughfare? Why not compare it to the the uh, the traffic volumes on on the freeway? It doesn't make any sense to me. Yet when these when this information is presented at a public forum, people just agree. They shake their heads. Yes, it's very bizarre to see this. And when I say something to the contrary, I'm treated like like I'm weird. Don't I go along with this? I don't stand? Isn't a half mile the same as 30 feet? Well, well I, I'm glad
0: that we had your time today to talk about your report. Is The re, the report was submitted to the city. Is it an, a document? It was submitted
2: to, to uh, IUSD. To
0: uh, the, the school district. So is there a way that listeners can get a copy so they can... Broaden their scope of what's involved in this final high school construction
2: project. I don't know. Uh, these are certainly public documents, and whether or not IUSD can release these before they review them or not, I really have no idea. But they could certainly call IUSD and ask them for and, that. And ask them for that.
0: That 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 gives IUSD a prompt that there there's concern throughout the constituency for. Um, one yeah. more accountability more transparency i mean transparency is what we're looking for folks we're not saying you have to go with one site or over the other it's Absolutely. it's a matter of putting the bright light on this because there are a lot of considerations that are market driven that aren't that have nothing to do with public policy have nothing to do with students that have put a lot of momentum behind
2: the uh, current process and so in fact uh, finally i should say that please Super- do Harvey, superintendent let's... walker indicated that he had gotten very few comments. Therefore, people must not be interested in the project or they agree with everything that's been done. So it's really very important to, because this is one of the last opportunities really to make your views known, and that's really what we want, Claudia, transparency, just no cover-up of any of this information. And the, it's The yes. public hearing itself was, was kind of very secretive. It was very difficult to find out when this was going to happen, uh, it only, was
0: during the holiday season.
2: Well, there was a the public hearing, there was a public hearing on this report which happened okay. 2 weeks after it was Mr. submitted during the 30-day comment period. It really should be at the beginning of the 30-day comment period to give people enough time to, to come up with what they're going to say. And the only way I found about this was because I had a know somebody at the Department of Toxic Substances Control and I asked asked her to just let me know when this when this public hearing is going to be? It's a lot
0: like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You can find out right. when that planning meeting is for the byway through the through Earth, past Earth, is on that uh, right that planet X that's got it in that's, that file cabinet. That's so, right, exactly. A little that's where removed it from is. that. Okay. Well, uh, just a closer here. Uh, we've got very close to this campus a an opportunity for students and nearby residents to consider a uh, that the planning commission's already considered it, but the city council will consider um, next Tuesday. March 11th, the the conditional permit that the conditional use permit to be considered uh, for the Chick Fil A drive-in with this is going to have the capacity to eliminate eliminate 18 parking spots permanently in that area. So uh, the planning commission voted three to two to approve the drive-through, but we um, we now have a uh, four members of the city council consider because Mayor Choi. Has a, uh, he has a vested interest in, um, or he has a stake as far as being a property lessee in the uh, University Tower. So there will only be four members voting on this. So uh, what, if you want to just make an appeal for people to, be, uh, to make this transparent, this uh, consideration of what would have been, as I said, would be the fourth drive-in in such a short span on Campus Drive.
2: Yes, first I need to say that the Planning Commission vote, vote on this issue was before I you was were appointed, appointed to the Planning Commission, right. so I was not on. However, I will be certainly on uh, continuing meetings. The, the basic issue is that there are already three drive-throughs on in the community. Town Center, I guess, called Commute. I mean, Same the Irvine, side. Irvine Town Center now called Irvine Center. However, this is kind of a industrial strength drive-through. They're going to have a three hundred and sixty foot long drive-in, the dual lane that accommodates eighteen vehicles, and they're really looking for a mass production kind of a thing that I don't think we've seen in in Irvine. So it was really a case of too much. And really, it doesn't fit the scheme of t- Town Center, which is really a pedestrian-friendly. People can meet people, go to restaurants, rather than attract people from a wide area just to drive through this uh, industrial-sized uh, uh, Chick-fil-A. Also, there is the, the political aspect of Chick-fil-A. I don't know where they, they currently stand, but there's certainly a lot of controversy. Well, there's
0: that. I know, And I know you don't have that much time. I just wanted – so just for people to imagine the whole dieseling effect of yet another drive-in, March 11th. You look for that on your city council agenda and find out when that's going to be, folks. And now,
2: you can see the the site for this. If you walk over, I think it's the Watson Bridge now that goes correct. to IBT. Correct. campus drive over there. If you there. just walk up a few steps, you can look down into the site. It's a mammoth. Site. It's all excavated up, and there's a sign that says "Coming Soon." Right. You need to show up. March 11th is when the uh, city council meeting is. Well, Harvey List, thank
0: you for coming on Ask a Leader, coming back again, and posting us on the school board's consideration for the new high school and the conditional use permit that's being considered after the planning commission did by the city council next week. Thanks for being on. Ask
2: thank you for having today. me, Claudia.
0: Thanks Bye-bye. for being here. Bye bye. We'll be right back. I'm going to let you listen a bit of Bernard Gilmore before we cue up his wife, his widow, Phyllis Gilmore. We'll be right back. Don't go away, folks. Thank you, everybody, for staying with us. That was a taste. Of Bernard Gilmore, the late Bernard Gilmore's uh, composition. It is called The Isles Triptych, County Limerick, and he wrote, it was recorded in 98, and we'll find out a little bit more about that recording, among others. My guest in the last part of the show uh, is Phyllis Gilmore. We just heard, as I said, an an excerpt uh, by Bernard Gilmore, in whose memory a very special concert will be presented. On campus this Saturday, the man who made music, appreciation, his life's work gets an evening of appreciation in his honor and memory. I have with us today Phyllis Gilmore, his wife. She uh, Bernard Gilmore a little bit about him. As he was a California native. Received his Bachelor of Arts and Master's of Arts from UCLA, and his Doctorate in the in the music uh, the DMA. It's called the DMA, the Doctorate of Musical Arts, yes. in conducting from Stanford University. His instrument, the French horn. He performed with the LA Philharmonic, the Haifa Symphony, the Boston Pops, and was featured a featured soloist with many university orchestras. Prior to joining UCI in 1982, Barney, as he's often called, Barney Kilmore taught at Cornell University and Oregon State University. From 1982 to 2006, he served as professor of music at UCI, where he conducted the orchestra and taught a variety of courses, including composition, theory, history, 20th century music, and opera and orchestral literature. He passed away last April. We have the pleasure of having his wife, Phyllis Gilmore, appear on Ask a Leader with me here in Studio A to talk about his career with notes, their musical collaboration, and this weekend's commemorative performance of his work. Phyllis herself is a musician. She received her Bachelor of Arts in Music from UCLA and Master's degrees from study at San Jose State University and more at Oregon State University. She taught private piano extensively and was an accompanist chamber player and soloist performing in America and Israel. She's taught opera appreciation in Oregon, and California. She maintains a private studio in Irvine where she teaches the Alexander technique. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Phyllis. Thank you, Claudia, and thank you for having me here. We are glad to have you. Thank you so much for coming, giving us your time today, Phyllis. Why, why don't you tell us along the way who shaped the way that your husband experienced performed and lectured on music who who shaped him
3: um he he had a very good solid musical education but i think the people outside it, and his friendships also influenced his viewpoint on music um he he was a very happy person and there's a lot of joy in his music making and in addition to his uh technical abilities as a musician uh and his high level of scholarship he also had always a humanistic approach to life and to his teaching and especially to his students he loved
0: his students very much amen and uh you, you say that um, some of his compositions were inspired by his commitment to civil rights. Tell us a little bit about that, Phyllis. Um,
3: he was very uh, shocked when affirmative action was challenged, and uh, he wrote one of his pieces uh, in response to that. In addition, one of his pieces is dedicated to the memories of, Of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, and also Viola Luizu, um, who uh, died in the cause of civil rights. Those were the first three were the ones that were killed in Philadelphia, Mississippi? Uh, Yes. Oh, my goodness. And uh, he he was always committed to civil rights. He felt uh, a kinship with those who were struggling, and also the black movement at that time was very cognizant of the struggles of the Jews uh, in previous times, and uh, he felt a link through that as well.
0: Okay. Well, do you think then this is a time to have a little listen to his uh, five folk songs for soprano and band? Sure. Shall we have a listen to that? Let's bring that. Let's cue that up right now. Have a listen.
2: McGrath, the sergeant said
1: would you like to make a soldier out of your son Ted, with a scarlet coat and a big cocked hat oh Mrs. McGrath wouldn't you like that would you to re da re re da to re
0: We'll keep listening a little bit. And uh, what does that call to you as you listen again to this piece? Uh, I have heard this
3: piece many times. It's by far Barney's um, most famous piece. It's been played worldwide and uh, received a Carnegie Hall performance at which we were present. And it, it's he wrote it at, at a very early age, in his 20s, and it was uh, recognized by the college Band Directors Association and it's really a wonderful piece of his interpretation of folk songs that particular folk song Mrs. McGrath to me is a very powerful anti-war statement uh, as the tension keeps growing between the glory of war and the realization what happened to Mrs. McGrath's son Ted and At the very end, she says, I'd rather have my son Ted back than the whole King's Nivey. And there's a wonderful pause, and it's then followed by this glorious martial music, as if they're saying, like, well, we've we've used your son, and we're going on, and thank you very much. And it just always brings tears to my eyes to hear that, that point in the song. I think it's a wonderful... Song,
0: an anti-war song, and a song for peace. Well, thank you, thank you for that re- reflection there. What we'll do is we'll play another one. That, that there's, it's quite a, a lot of flavors going on. There's the um, then some Mrs. McGrath, There's others, uh, the Elburo and the fiddler. We can play a little bit of both of those so okay. we can show the the, uh, the palette here that um, that that Barney had contributed. So let's try have another listen to. This next one. This is the, the Spanish El Burro, and then we'll do the Yiddish one. Here we go. It's live. Live recording. hmm From, uh, let's see. What year was this? Uh, the recording, I think,
3: was sometime in the 80s or 90s. Okay. And it was uh, done at UCI.
0: Okay. Here. want to hear the rich texture of the Spanish. Defy a little, imp, a little influence there.
3: <laughs> well, he he was a wonderful colorist, and uh, he used the instruments very well, and that was you know like a, a, a very dark color to paint the death of this borough of uh, the town. So. Uh,
0: We want to give a teaser only because we want to make sure those who uh, haven't already picked up their reservations for these free tickets. Um, there's a couple dozen left, I think, as I checked last uh, uh, oh, wow. yesterday. So uh, we'll uh, take that, um, uh, give everybody, just as I said, a little teaser while we talk a little bit more about the program. So um, we'll, we'll queue up the next one, the Yiddish um, composition, also The uh, the Fiddler in just a little bit. Well, so what is it that you want to see people take away from this appreciation and commemoration of your husband, Phyllis? Uh,
3: Barney had a way of um, relating to music and relating to people to have a wonderful mu- musical experience as high and as uh, the best quality as he could, but also to create bonds between them. And I'd like that concert to uh, convey that in Barney's memory, and it has already. The planning for the concert and the way that people have acted and the way that people have put in efforts and gone forth to honor his memory, this happened, the planning for the concert happened literally during the Shiva period which in Jewish tradition is the seven days following the death of the person. Within that week, people were already wanting to say, I want to do something in Barney's memory. And it grew from there. And from um, the initial, um, the initiation of Professor Christopher Dobrin, who wanted to have some kind of an evening. It grew, and it's been shepherded by Barney's colleague and my friend, Professor Nina Skolnick, and many, many others who have been involved in the uh, performance aspect and uh, the administration. There's so much to work out, and everybody has done it with... With good cheer and with with enthusiasm, and it's been so rewarding to realize how much his memory means to
0: people. Absolutely, for those of you who haven't seen, where you can get more information, I'll direct you to the School of the Arts. Their website's arts.uci.edu forward slash calendar, or you can, or there's the tickets. Um, Tab there. Then there's the phone for number for the box office at nine four nine eight two four twenty seven eighty seven. And the concert, the Bernard Gilmore Memorial Concert, will be performed, as I said earlier, it's Saturday, that's March nine, the Saturday, eight PM at the Winifred Smith Hall. Admission is free, but you must have have a reservation because the seating is limited, and it's a wonderful venue. And he's his Bernard Barney, Barney's been there; he's performed there. Yes, his colleagues perform there to this day, and as do his students. So it's a it's a hallmark right there. Yes, and also there's the possibility
3: of opening an overflow room because the response has been so positive with this. Okay, and, and the overflow room just out in the uh, the.
0: The lobby like part?
3: A, a feed room. Okay. No, that would be in an additional room a separate with a structure. monitor. Separate
0: structure. Okay. Okay, good. Oh. I, I'm not sure about this. And what's in store, folks, it will be the music department faculty. There will be students and alumni contributing to this program. So you had a part in this? Or yes, Nina I'll Skolnick be, I'll selecting? I'll be
3: performing uh, the two songs from Torah with uh, and Andemichiel, who originally requested these songs for her master's recital. Uh, She's now a divinity student at Yale, and she was very interested in liturgical music. And uh, Alan Terciano, I believe, wrote um, the uh, Christian aspect. Max Vladimirov wrote the uh, Russian uh, Orthodox text. And Barney chose two songs from Torah, and uh, she performed it then, and we've performed. I didn't perform at her master's recital. We performed it since then. She's coming from Connecticut to perform, and it's a joy to work with her. She's she's just our soul daughter. We just love
0: her. Wow. Yes. Oh, that's that's really really marvelous. Well, um, as uh, we close. I don't know. Oh, we're going to just have a little listen to the the Yiddish, the fiddler here, just a little, little another teaser for people. And uh, then we'll, we'll have a last one last question here. Was a taste. I didn't want to talk over it. I just want, though, that people get a little bit of a flavor of that. And I had uh, some uh, a last sort of a consideration here that um, a reminder here it's this concert will be March 9th, this Saturday, 8 o'clock at the Winifred Smith Hall. March yes, 8th. Um, March 8th. Oh, thank you. Of course, March 8th, that's International Women's Day. So it's really, there's a lot happening that night. Oh. So um, yes, indeed. I, one of those little extra things there. So um, then I wanted to say, uh, Barney, uh, unfortunately, succumbed to Alzheimer's disease. And I want for you, Phyllis, to um, for you to give our listeners the assurance that we will take up on a later show, the ever important role that music played in your husband's coping and your managing with the challenges of Alzheimer's disease. Can we give that assurance to listeners? Uh, Yes, I,
3: I'd be, uh, glad to speak on that. Uh, and to tell just my own, uh, personal experience, I can't speak for others, but, um, music carried us through and, uh,
0: Made his life meaningful, even in his illness. Absolutely, and that's going to come through in the commemoration. And as we close today's interview, we'll be playing an excerpt of Barney's playing his own horn, a piece composed by Strauss. And um, that is going to be the uh, the horn concerto. I don't know what's the what exact horn concerto will that be. That's the Strauss horn concerto. And
3: that won't be performed. It'll be all Barney's music, but uh, Barney uh, is
0: the featured soloist on that particular track. Okay, and while we play out this interview with Barney's own French horn, uh, recorded in, uh, I believe it was in 1969, so this is vintage, vintage in the present contemporary show, folks. Yeah, at Oregon State University. At Oregon State. I want to thank his wife, his widow, Phyllis Gilmore, for being on Ask a Leader today.
3: It's been a pleasure, and thank you so much thank, for this opportunity. Thank
0: you. So we'll go out with the sound. And there's Barney's horn. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Happy Mardi Gras, all.